You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,917th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 23rd of February 2023. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Colin Holmes and your readers are David Palmer and Chris Payne. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We'll now commence with the headlines. Crime Crackdown Anger over town's painful, never-ending roadworks. Concerns. Families are missing out on food vouchers. Gastroenterologist appointed new chief executive at Trust. A crackdown on antisocial <coughs> behaviour in Burris and Edmonds Town Centre is underway. It comes amid concerns about groups gathering on the corner of Cornhill and Brent Govell Street on weekdays and at weekends. Shoppers and staff for nearby shops are reported feeling intimidated by the groups of between 20 and 40 youths who gather in the late afternoon. Incidents including rubble from building works being thrown, fights banging on shop doors, motorbikes being ridden, a smell of cannabis, abusive language and threats to smash windows. There are also concerns about older adults street drinking and motorists parking illegally. On Saturday evening, police issued a Section 35 dispersal order across the town centre. It followed concerns about gangs of youths gathering in the area between McDonald's, Moises Hall Museum and Cornhill Walk. McDonald's has also recently employed a security guard to help tackle the issue. The dispersal order gave police the powers to direct people to leave any area within the town centre to reduce the likelihood of crime or disorder and not return for up to 36 hours. Berris and Edmonds Inspector Andy Beebe said the precursor to the dispersal order being issued was people gathering in the pedestrianised area around Brent Gobble Street. Somewhere in the region of 40 youths had gathered initially and can be quite a big group but with only one or two causing trouble. Two people were later dispersed from the Ark Shopping Centre later in the evening as people moved around. Antisocial behaviour in the Cornhill and Rank Gravel Street area was one of the drivers of using the Section 35 tactic to deal with it robustly. Police say they have now also stepped up antisocial behaviour patrols across the town. They say they are keeping a close eye on the Brent Govell area, where there has also been on ongoing problems with motorists parking illegally. Between October the 1st and January the 23rd, more than 106 penalty tickets were landed, handed out by West Suffolk Council to drivers parking in the area, dubbed the McDonald's drive through Inspector Beebees added, there are additional police in the area, additional enforcement of the pedestrianised area, enforcement of the protection order in town in terms of drinking and begging. It is not necessarily an escalation of either problem, but more an ac- accumulation of what we are doing to take positive action. The spokesman for McDonald's confirmed security had been stepped up at the town centre store. 
Calls have been made for better planning over the number of roadworks taking place in Berries and Edmonds town centre. Steve Mattinson, manager of Waitrose on Robert Bobby Way, said the constant round of disruption was frustrating customers and hitting trade. His comments came after Tayfen Road closed this week for the second time in less than three months, with gridlock expected. Other roadworks in Berry Town Centre include Tafen Road, closed until March the 3rd, Risbygate Street until March 24th, School Yard until March 27th, and St Andrews Street South and Northgate Street, which ended today. Work is also ongoing on St Andrews Street South for the post office development. Mr Mattinson said, I've tried to ignore it, but it's now becoming painful, especially now Tafen Road is closed again. For the last six months, it just seems like one road work after another, and there never seems any urgency to get anything completed. We've had roadworks on Kings Road, Risbygate Street, St Andrews Street South, then Tafen Road every few, few weeks, and the gridlocks just appear everywhere. It's just constant. The roadworks need better planning, so they're not all happening at once. Gas company Cadent and telecoms firm City Fibre are behind most of the works. Zoe Battersby of Peckham Street, close to Tafen Road, said cars are using Pe- Peckham Street as a cut-through again. It's just terrible. The drivers are aggressive, too fast, and this morning a dog narrowly missed being hit. It could have been a child. I'm so angry about this. Mark Cordell, chief executive of Berry's Business Improvement District, said I know these works have to be done but it does seem that it's continuous now and it's having a detrimental effect on town businesses. Cornhill Walk is also now being dug up. This is a difficult time of year for businesses and there needs to be better coordination and consideration of the impact these roadworks are having on businesses, customers, potential customers and residents. A Suffolk Highways spokesman said they aim to minimise the congestion caused by roadworks by coordinating works effectively with the road space available. We continually assess the overall impact of works on the network with regular inspections to ensure that works are compliant, progressing as planned and permit conditions are being adhered to, he said. Concerns have been raised that low-income Suffolk families are missing out on government help to buy milk and healthy food for their babies and young children. Jack Abbott, Labour's prospective parliamentary candidate for Ipswich, criticised the government over its handling of the NHS Healthy Start Scheme, which provides a prepaid card to those eligible to buy items like infant formula milk and fruit and vegetables. Latest data reveals that uptake across the county is 61%, meaning 2,130 eligible families are missing out on the support. Across the Suffolk local authority areas, uptake was lowest in Mid-Suffolk at 57%. In West Suffolk, uptake is 63%. The scheme is for those on a low income who are pregnant or have a young child, as well as, as, well as pregnant under-18s who are not on benefits and provides up to £8.50 each week. Nationally, it's been reported that thousands of people were incorrectly ruled ineligible for support, with some parents waiting more than a year for backdated payments when the scheme moved over from paper vouchers to a digital prepaid card system.
Mr Abbott, who has led the campaign in Suffolk to raise awareness of Healthy Start, said, We have worked hard over the past two years to raise awareness about Healthy Start vouchers, but this latest Conservative shambles has really hampered efforts. Crucially, more than 2,000 eligible families in Suffolk are still missing out on this vital help. It's totally unacceptable at the best of times for people to not receive the support they're entitled to. But the fact that the government has made such a mess of Healthy Start is staggering given the cost of living crisis. A spokesperson for NHS Business Services Authority, which delivers the scheme on behalf of the Department of Health and Social Care, said national uptake is currently 62.7%, which is an increase compared to uptake for the previous paper voucher scheme. More families are now eligible for the scheme than before, and the number of beneficiaries on the scheme has increased by more than 20,000 since August 21. We also contacted the DHSC for comment. Dr. Ewan Cameron, a consultant gastroenterologist who brings with him a wealth of experience and knowledge, has been appointed new chief executive for the West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, the WSFT. Uh, Dr. Cameron previously worked as the Director of Improvement and Transformation, as well as an Interim Chief Operating Officer at Cambridge University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. He said, I'm delighted to start my new role. There are some huge pressures on the NHS and its staff currently. I'm really excited to get to work with colleagues all across the organisation so that our staff are allowed to develop the solutions to these challenges and so that we can continue offering the high standard of support and care for the West Suffolk community. It's also a very exciting time to be joining the Trust with our new healthcare facility on the horizon. In his previous role, Dr Cameron worked as a consultant gastroenterologist and will continue doing so for one afternoon a week at WSFT, which manages West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds. Jude Chin, the chair of WSFT, said Ewan brings with him a wealth of experience and knowledge, making him the perfect choice to lead the Trust into the future. He's an outstanding leader whose passion and commitment to the NHS will be a great asset to our organisation. Winter may be nearly... Now we move to the general news. Winter may nearly be over, but the cold weather is here to stay for a little longer, as snowfall is forecast to hit Suffolk in the coming weeks. Weather forecaster WX Charts shows low low levels of snow falling across the county on Tuesday, February 28th. If snow does fall, it will most likely hit the west and south parts of the region. Heavier snowfall is expected on Wednesday, March 1st, while WX Charts shows the whole region is expected to get snow, with larger flurries expected in towns and villages by the coast. The chart predicts that up to two centimetres of snow could fall per hour in some parts of the county. It comes after the Met Office warned that a major weather event is likely to hit Suffolk in the coming weeks. The forecaster has said a major sudden stratospheric warning is now likely to take place in late February or early March across the UK. It was a major SSW which brought the beast from the east to the UK in 2018 as the country saw 22 inches of snowfall in some places. 
However, the Met Office stress that an SSW does not always equate to a beast from the east weather scenario. A date has been set for the reopening of a major Bury St Edmunds town centre area after it was closed for redevelopment two years ago. Barnes Construction, who are working on the redevelopment of the former post office at 17 to 18 Corn Hill, have confirmed that the market thoroughfare will reopen to the public on Wednesday, February the 22nd. The walkway which runs between the Ark and the town centre has been closed since September 2020. The redevelopment has seen the walkway width increase by more than 50%, now measuring at 3.8 metres across at ground floor level. The reopening will also enable prospective tenants to view the 12 new apartments and two commercial units in the old post office space. Councillor John Griffiths, leader of West Suffolk Council, said this project has had near-unanimous support from councillors, town centre partners and the public. It builds on our considerable investment in the town centre and demonstrates our continuing commitment and confidence in its future as a lovely place people will continue to come to whether to work, to live or to visit. A West Suffolk councillor has put, pot, has put her support and some of her locality budget behind Bury St Edmunds Library's push to keep people warm. The library in St Andrew Street North has handed out knitted hats and coats and nearly 1,200 free hot drinks since November, thanks to donations as part of Suffolk Library's Be Kind, In Kind campaign. Councillor Julia Wakeham, Abbeygate Ward Councillor, has given £507 to, su to support the campaign, including money for a kindness rack, allowing people to pick up donated clothes, a mini fridge and supplies for more hot drinks. The councillor said she was more than happy to help this important work for the community. Jill Turner, the library's assistant manager, said, We are very grateful to Councillor Wakelam for the locality funding, which will enhance the vital services we are providing to local people who are affected by the cost of living. It's fantastic to see people coming together to help each other in these challenging times, and we are doing our bit to help. A number of repairs are due to be carried out at Bury St Edmunds railway station, as well as the removal of a car wash office building. A Greater Anglia wants to demolish the timber single-storey car wash building at the back of the station and repair and clean the exposed wall. A new covered cycle storage facility for 52 bikes would be built in its place. It is also due to carry out waterproofing works at Platforms 1 and 2. A Design and Access and Heritage Statement submitted to West Suffolk Council said the plans followed recent concourse works and a new passenger entrance at the back of the station. Uh, repairs are to be made to the roof of an empty building at Platform 1 as water is leaking into the rooms below. A temporary scaffold tower would be built to the south and doors and windows would also be refurbished in the rooms below. At Platform 2, waterproofing works would be made at platform level to the ramp area at the end of the platform. Member of Parliament <coughs> Caroline Lucas visited Elmswell and Stowmarket last week to show her support to the Green Party's local election campaign. The MP for Brighton and the UK's first Green Member of Parliament in 210 visited Elmswell on February the 10th, the day after giving a speech at a sell-out event in Stowmarket the day before. 
The Green Party's only MP and its ex-leader talked about taxing the super-rich and how devolution should mean democracy. She said, I think the Green Party has absolutely transformed since I first became leader in 2008. In areas of the country in 2008, you would have to explain what the Green Party was, that we're not Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth, but we're a political party. But now everybody knows what the Green Party is, and 99.9% .9 of people know what we stand for. Our target is to get 20 seats at the next local election, and we're within grasp of taking Mid-Suffolk District Council. We are the main challenger to the Conservatives here, at a time when even die-hard Conservatives are frankly looking at this government in horror. Having become the Green Party's first leader of the Green Party in 2008, she led the party until 2012 and was co-leader between 2016 and 2018. On the NHS strikes, Miss Lucas said, we've got nurses dependent on food banks and senior nurses whose salaries are worth 20% less in real terms than when they started working in 2010. That's just not sustainable. You can't have a, thri a thriving NHS if you don't have the workforce. The workers you do have are totally burned out and people are leaving in droves. Paying nurses and all public sector workers properly is in the national interest. We think there is a whole range of ways you could pay them. We would have a fair wealth tax on the 1% richest people, so on anyone with wealth above 3.4 million. We would have a proper windfall tax on fossil fuel companies, raising £5 billion at the very least. Miss Lucas also spoke about devolution, in Suffolk County Council, leader Matthew, sorry, Miss Lucas also spoke about devolution as Suffolk County Council leader Matthew Hicks signed a provisional devolution deal to Suffolk last year. This would give the county council an elected mayor, additional powers over areas such as adult education, and £16 million a year. The MP said, perversely, the government seems to be combining devolution with anti-democracy rather than democracy. For us, devolution is absolutely about greater democracy. I'm co-chair of an all-party parliamentary group on the Green New Deal, and we are bringing out a devolution report. One of the things we say in this report is that you shouldn't have to elect a mayor before you can have the powers that come with devolution. You should be trusting your demo demo democratically elected councillors to have the powers to make those decisions. A new date has been given for the resurfacing of a busy stretch of the A14 near Stowmarket that will last for the next 16 months. The roadworks will begin on Monday after being delayed from Tuesday, February the 7th. National Highways will be replacing the road surface between Hawley and Tot Hill at Junction 47A and Junction 49, and a 50 mile per hour contraflow system will be put in place while the works take place. The A14 will be closed overnight between Junctions 43 and 51 from Monday to Tuesday, March 28th, while the, con the contraflow is being installed. These closures will be in place from Monday to Friday, from 8pm to 6am each night. Andy Jobling, National Highways Programme mm. Delivery Manager, said 
The A14 is a very popular route with motorists, helping to provide a transport corridor between the north, the Midlands and East Anglia. Upgrading this stretch will make it safer and smoother, ensuring it's fit for the thousands of drivers who use it every day. The project uh, is part of National Highway's long-term plan of investing £400 million to repair and replace roads across the country. It will also see replacement curbs installed, safety barriers replaced, new markings and reflective studs. Mr Jobling added, despite uh, serving us well for decades, the surface of this stretch of road is coming towards the end of its life. It needs upgrading. However, uh, now a separate article says, diversion routes have been branded nonsensical as repair work to the A14 gets underway. The work is taking place between Hawley and Tothill and includes the imposition of a diversion, adding about 40 minutes to journeys. Land agent Simon Pott, who lives in the Barry St Edmunds area, says the diversion is nonsensical and will cause chaos in villages. A spokesman for National Highways said the route had been carefully chosen and drivers were urged to stick to the approved route. An aircraft enthusiast who works in Mildenhall has created a, re a replica of a Spitfire warplane in his tiny garden shed. Kenneth Mockford runs a flight simulator business called sim to do selling experiences in his simulators in the town, where people can buy one-hour flights from £60. The 59-year-old Grandfather's Challenge, which took off during 2020's lockdown, has resulted in a perfect double of the front half of the iconic Second World War fighter. A former member of the South African Air Force, Kenneth paid around £30,000 for the parts and built the Spitfire in his 3 by 5 metre shed at his home in Burwell. The ex-mechanic comes from a line of Air Force veterans, including his great-uncle Frederick Mockford, the originator of the May Day distress signal in 1917. I'm a nutty engineer, basically, said Kenneth. I have Asperger's syndrome, and I always say that it's my gift. It is a superpower. If people with Asperger's aren't doing something, they're getting up to mischief. I'm able to analyse things to the nth degree and can see things in a way that other people cannot. People with autism and Asperger's often get ridiculed by the general population because they're not the same as everyone else. But the general person looks at the world through normal eyes and we look at the world in 3D. In 2014, the dad of two quit his job as head of engineering at Baxter Healthcare UK and turned his shed into an aircraft hangar. The Spitfire is the latest project for Kenneth, who has built an entire F-35 fighter jet and rewired the front end of a Lynx helicopter and Boeing 737 aircraft into simulators. The Spitfire simulator is his latest project and his only simulator which shoots from the aircraft's gun, used by the RAF during the Second World War. The machine even vibrates when you pull the trigger and the pilot can fight up to 19 enemy aircraft during a flight. According to him, his family initially thought he had lost it, but when he set out to make his first project, the Boeing 737, in 2012, they now get the hype and are fully behind him. A green-fingered Brandon Group has been shortlisted in a Britain in Bloom category for the first time as the competition celebrates its 60th year. 
Brandon in Bloom is one of the year, this year's 44 finalists and is the Anglia region's representative for the six-strong town section of the UK competition. The group will compete against the likes of Abergavenny Town Council, Wistaston in Bloom from the northwest, and Dongadadee in Ulster, Northern Ireland. Rachel Sobiotrovsky, head of horticulture for Brandon in Bloom, said she was very excited after being told the news. She added, entry into the Britain in Bloom campaign will promote Brandon on a national level. We intend to do our best to show the rest of the UK just what a wonderful community Brandon has. In order to achieve success, we now need more volunteers to join our team of 26 doing physical tasks such as gardening, watering and litter picking. But we also have lots of handicraft work and admin tasks too. We are launching a new sponsorship scheme at three levels as well, so all local businesses can donate to our group, but also receive various levels of advertising and other rewards in return for their much-needed support. The group also received congratulations from West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock on the news. He said, I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to hear Brandon in Bloom has been chosen to represent our region at the prestigious Britain in Bloom finals. Hats off to the team and to the local community for all your hard work. It's a fantastic achievement and one you should be immensely proud of. Good luck, Brandon. A new support group for parents and carers of children with special educational needs, that's known as SEN, has been launched in Elmswell thanks to a mum of four. Natasha, aged 31, who has daughters aged between 2 and 14, said she felt she needed to set up SEND Superstars at the Wesley um, Centre because there is not enough support for those in Suffolk who have children with additional needs. Currently, her four-year-old, who is visually impaired, is being assessed for autism and epilepsy and her youngest is showing autistic traits. The single mum said, I feel like prior to being an additional needs parent. I didn't realise how hard it was. With my eldest two, I could go anywhere, do anything, but now I choose not to because of the looks we get. Natasha said sometimes she feels as though parents are staring at her four-year-old, which she finds frustrating. She explained, just because a child has different needs, they still have the right to be treated the same. It's just not fair. Nobody knows how an autistic child or a child with, with additional needs is feeling. Natasha has also started up a Facebook group, SEN Families, Bury St Edmunds and surrounding areas, where parents can ask for advice, information and support. She said, I want there to be somewhere for parents and carers of SEN children where they don't feel judged. The British Heart Foundation charity Stowmarket Shop in Ipswich Street has celebrated 20 years of donations. 22 volunteers flocked to the town centre shop on Monday, February the 6th to enjoy a buffet and a certificate presentation. Assistant Manager Phil Aldous was pleased to see all the volunteers together as the team has not been able to have an anniversary celebration since 2019. He said it was so great to have everyone back. It was a great chance to see everyone in one environment as well and for our new volunteers to meet our older volunteers. Although we see the volunteers every week, we don't see them in a mass group altogether like that very often. It just made it all so much more worthwhile to get everyone back and hearing stories from one another. It really felt like we were rekindling the friendships. 
Phil joined the team in 2009 after both his grandfathers, Frederick and Kenneth, died due to heart-related issues. He has a tattoo to honour his grandparents and to also show his pride in working for the charity for close to a decade. Each volunteer received a certificate to recognise their hard work and dedication to the charity. However, some also celebrated personal milestones within the team. Six volunteers celebrated 15 years of working at the shop, while one marked their 20th year who started volunteering a week before the shop opened in 2002. The newest member joined the team only three days before the event was held, and it was their first shift on the morning of the party. What a way to start, Phil said. I think it's encouraging for them to see the longevity of how long our other volunteers have been here. The British Heart Foundation is always searching for more volunteers to get involved and support the charity in different ways. Volunteering offers a chance to meet new friends, improve skills and help fund life-saving research. To find out more, visit www.bhf.org.uk. Phil said, I know everyone says it, but we really are a family unit. We all get on so well, and I can't wait for next year's anniversary celebration. A Bury St Edmunds woman temporarily using a walking frame has said she has had her eyes opened to the town's mobility issues and getting into some of its shops. Jill Rouse, who lives just off St John Street, has been using the aid for ten months and says it has shown her just how difficult it is to get around town. Uneven paving slabs, pavement potholes, as well as narrow entrances and heavy doors are just some of the obstacles Jill says she has encountered. She added, I've nearly gone over the frame quite a few times due to the pavements. I've been lucky I've not been seriously injured. On the shops, Jill said, though there are a few which have a good access for frame users, there were still some that made it impossible to get into safely. She said, some people I have spoken to, who are less mobile, have said all these issues make them afraid of coming into town, which is terrible. Jill, who works in a sales office selling new homes, said she understands the town is old and it's difficult for the council to go up and down every street, but feels these issues will only get worse with the ageing population. She said, age comes to all of us and mobility around the town and shop access is going to be more of an issue as time goes on. If more people took a frame around town, they would be as surprised as me to see the hazards that are there. In response, a spokesperson for Suffolk Highways said, generally the roads or footways in the town centre and immediate vicinity are either inspected every three months or every four weeks. The spokesman added, we encourage members of the public to continue reporting any road defects to us via our highways reporting tool online. A Haverhill food bank for cats and dogs is turning to the community for help in its hour of need. Boomerang's pet food bank was launched by Tanya Rudkin last August. It is now desperately trying to raise the funds for a van to enable it to keep delivering much-needed food to pets around Haverhill. Mrs Rudkin founded the food bank after learning that many food banks do not cater for animals. I have a disabled son, and on Tuesdays he volunteers with a support worker at a human food bank where he makes up parcels, she explained. Her son's support worker mentioned to her that their packages rarely included food for pets. I thought, 
I'm sure that a lot of those people who go to the food bank will have a dog or a cat, continued Mrs. Rudkin, age 48. I looked into it and I realised that while the majority of food banks can cater to animals, they tend to wait for people to ask them. So when someone comes in, they will be asked how many adults are in the family and how many children. They're not often asked if, if there are any pets. So Mrs. Rudkin decided to fill this gap and Boomerang's pet food bank was born. Approximately 300 households now rely on this service. The charity provides food mainly to cats and dogs and also to smaller pets such as hamsters, rabbits and guinea pigs. It's unable to provide live food for reptiles. However, shortly before Christmas, Mrs Rudkin's car broke down due to being overloaded with food parcels. The charity is now hoping to raise the funds to buy its own van so that no pets in Haverhill are left to go hungry. A father whose son was diagnosed with an extremely rare condition is set to undertake a gruelling run for a charity which supported his family during the toughest of times. Andy Cross of Thurston will be running in the London Marathon on April the 23rd to raise funds for the Sick Children's Trust, which gave him and his family a home away from home close to Adambrooks Hospital in Cambridge, where his baby son was battling for his life. Andy's son Rory was born in January 22 with a rare genetic condition called Chittayat syndrome, a condition that has been confirmed um, in only 13 people in the world with only one other case in the UK. The condition causes Rory to have breathing problems and he needs oxygen while he sleeps. He also uses a feeding tube which gives him fluid and his medication. Rory spent the first few months of his life in West Suffolk Hospital and was later transferred to Adambrooks Hospital after becoming seriously ill with a cold in March last year. It was during this time when the Sick Children's Trust offered Andy and his wife Kirsty a room to live in at its Acorn House, just minutes away from the hospital. Andy said it gave us one less thing to worry about. You don't really think about too much when your child is that poorly. It was nice to be able to spend time together because we've got two little boys and while Rory was in West Suffolk Hospital we were like passing ships. My wife would be with him in the day and I, I would then do nights as I was holding down a full-time job. It was, not a real, it was not a great time for us but it saved us having to find a hotel or commute from our home. Andy describes himself as a casual runner and has had to contend with the great British weather on his training sessions, but he's slowly clocking up the miles. My training is going better than expected. I'm feeling comfortable. I hope I can run the marathon in four hours and 30 minutes, he added. To help Andy reach his charity target of 2,500, the Fox and Hounds in Thurston will be holding a family fun day on March 11th. There will be a live DJ, a raffle, auction, face painting and charity cycle ride. A dad of two is set to compete to become the UK's strongest man in June. Dan Markham from Haverhill will compete in his first strongman finals after coming second in the Midlands regionals. That placement has meant that he will travel to Galway in Ireland to compete in the finals on June the 4th. He said, I'm still letting it sink in. My boys don't understand what strongman is, but they come to competitions and see me pull a lorry or lift the big stones, and they think I'm superhuman. Every dad wants their kids to look up to them, so it's a really nice thing. 
Mr Markham, aged 37, has been training for most of his life and has said it has really helped with his mental health. He said, I was in the gym and a personal trainer came up to me and asked me what I was training for because I was lifting such heavy weights. I just enjoyed doing that at the gym. He said to me that I should be competing, so I went away and looked at it and found some amateur competitions. My first competition was a Southern England Strongest Man, where I came second, and that was just from working out at the gym. He's also competed in powerlifting, qualifying for the British Championships, where he came fifth in the country. However, due to COVID and powerlifting being an indoor sport, he stopped briefly to do strongman. Mr Markham now has to travel around to different strongman gyms to practice using the equipment they have in the competitions. On the final in June, he said, I'm really fired up. The top five go through to the world's strongest man, which would be such an honour. Two people have been arrested after a stolen car crashed into a ditch near Sudbury. The incident happened on Sunday evening when a family vehicle was stolen outside a shop in Haverhill. According to Sudbury and Haverhill Police on Facebook, the stolen vehicle was then seen entering the Cavendish area. Police said no pursuit followed because the thieves managed to put the car into a ditch. Both suspects left the vehicle and the area was swamped by offices from Haverhill, Sudbury and Bury St Edmunds. One suspect was then arrested. As the search continued, the National Police Air Service sent a helicopter to the Suffolk village to help find the second suspect. Sudbury and Haverhill Police added, with their help, the second and final suspect was flushed out after making a brave run into the village churchyard and trying to hide behind a tree. The car was recovered and the suspects were taken into custody by police, who wanted to reassure <coughs> the Cavendish community that all is now well. A Barnum teenager with dreams of becoming an airline pilot and set to take his first solo flight in August has voiced his worries about the possible closure of Skyward flight training at Rotham Airfield. Jack Brooks from Newell Street hopes to take his solo flight on his 16th birthday on August 27th with the school he's been flying with since he was 14. But with the news last week that it will not have its lease renewed after it expires on May 31st due to owners Ruffham Estate wanting to return the site to farmland, that could be in jeopardy. The 15-year-old's mum, Judy, said, We're absolutely gutted. Jack is ready to fly solo, but he can't do that until he's 16. We were hoping to do his first solo flight there, as everyone has been so supportive since he started, but we fear now that may not happen. Jack, who was also a young carer for his brother Joshua, who has a brain injury, said he was gutted to hear he may not take to the skies on his birthday. He added, To fly there is amazing. I go to school in Exworth, and to see that from the sky and other places I go to from above is quite incredible. If the airfield does go, possibilities for Jack to fly could be at Old Buckingham, Ipswich or even Cambridge. Judy said it's not a cheap hobby and to factor in going further to do it will reduce the amount of lessons Jack will do. That's a real tragedy as he has a plan on how to make his pilot dream a reality and this could change all of that. Jack says flying is all he thinks about, paying for his lessons by working for his dad who was a gardener and even using his own simulator when he's not in the air. He said, as a pilot, you're going to have to get used to taking off and landing at different places, but changing that and the people you fly with whilst learning would be more significant than people think. 
Judy said she sent a lot of disapproval to the owner's plans online and hopes the continuing noise of discontent sends a message. She said they really need to look at the bigger picture. It's not just a community space, but also a business space for the flying school. It's their livelihood that they are facing having ripped away from underneath them. This is not just about a bit of land going, but the impact that it will have on young people too, like Jack, who have dreams to fly. Moving on to the ever-popular letter section, and our first two letters are about the proposed closure of Ruffham Airfield. And my first one is written by Brian Davis of St. Olaf's Road in Bury St. Edmunds. And he says, don't wipe out more of our history. A key factor in the defeat of the German war machine was the part played by the American men and aircraft we welcomed to our shores with open arms. It follows that without their overwhelming support and contribution, we would almost certainly have been defeated. And with that in mind, I think we should explore every avenue open to try and save for posterity what's left of the wartime footing, Rotham Airfield, Control Tower, and the few remaining outbuildings from where the Boeing B-17 flying fortresses took the war to Nazi Germany. The original runway has been dug up, but the control tower still bears witness to the importance this site once held, and should so remain for the present and future generations to remember the brave Americans who took off from this airfield, too many of whom never returned. Apart from this historic importance, the airfield still hosts various activities, and we would be gratefully missed by so many. With a little imagination, this site could be made a lot more interesting and prove to be a must-see for visitors to Bury, particularly Americans of all ages. Don't let another page in the book of our island's history be torn out and forgotten. In contrast, we have a letter from someone who would welcome the closure. Trevor Goodfellow of Thurston says, If the airfield is to close, then I for one approve. With all the doom and gloom in the news recently, I was delighted to see the front page article, Berry Free Press, February the 10th, about the end of pilot training from Ruffham Airfield. Imagine a calm, sunny day with birds singing and the smell of fresh cut grass, then the incessant, loud hum of light aircraft flying directly overhead, then another, and another, all day long, sometimes three at a time, and as one goes out of earshot, the next arrives as they fly round and round. If the airfield is going to close, then I for one approve. This primarily leisure activity, which interferes with my leisure, even to the point that some planes drown out the sound from my TV or have to struggle to have a conversation, I will just not miss it. These irritating planes are far more annoying than the occasional Apache and Chinook helicopters, American military planes and private planes and helicopters that we already have to put up with. Before readers start saying the airfield has been there a long time, why did you move there? My home was built about 200 years before the invention of manned flight, and although I have not lived here for hundreds of years, I have lived here since before the pilot training started. I once drove past Sybil Andrews Academy as a plane came into land, and I was horrified how close it was to the school as it flew over. Good luck to the students trying to concentrate in class and their safety. Vera Hughes of Burris and Admins asks, MPs, we need and deserve better. 
when is britain going to have people entering parliament as mps to benefit the country and everyone in it over several years those in charge of running britain have failed to do what's expected of them to sort out all that is wrong the main thing they excel at is not being honest making untrue statements as to how things will be resolved in the future during present times everything is now suffering through mps not doing their job properly it's a complete insult to the working classes when they know britain is being run by mps who take full advantage of having their bread buttered on both sides boris johnson and matt hancock are just two examples why are MPs allowed to earn money from other quarters when they should devote their time doing the job of being people's MPs? Ordinary people have to try getting a second job, as surviving on one wage is almost impossible. The cost of living is making it hard to stay out of debt. Let's hope the present MPs will endeavour to be more worthy of running the country, otherwise allow more genuine folk to take over we need and deserve better now a letter from b walker of woodbridge and he says why are we paying for this exactly a year ago edward argar argar then a conservative health minister said that 5.5 million items of ppe were still being held in container storage the cost of that storage is 249,000 pound per day i.e millions of pounds per month the containers are stored on rented sites around the country, including several in Suffolk, and storage is still costing millions of pounds to this day, but there's no money for the nurses. I would like to add a further question to Jehu Evans' letter in the East Anglian Daily Times on February the 14th. Why are we taxpayers still continuing to pay millions of pounds per month for the storage of the unfit-for-purpose PPE purchased with our money by the government from their VIP lane profiteering friends? John Dell of Sudbury says, how many new hospitals? I seem to recall our former Prime Minister promising to build 40 new hospitals by 2030. This, if you recall, was to help gain our votes and win the December 29 general election, as some of our hospitals are literally falling down. So, how's that going then? Two years and two Prime Ministers later. Not well, it seems. Few of the new hospitals are reported to even have planning permission. One of the bosses of a health service trust was quoted in a broadsheet newspaper at the weekend as saying that there is a 0% chance there's going to be 40 new hospitals by 2030. We'll be moderately lucky to get eight. That could well be bad news for the people of Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft area, as the James Paget Hospital was one of those 40. Has anyone ever tried to prosecute a government for deception? Ask for a country. Now a letter from Ian Smith, uh, who lives in Bury St Edmunds, and he says that the church is destroying itself from within. How many like me and Edwin Edwards, in East Anglian Daily Times on February the 6th, are wondering exactly what is happening in the Church of England? It looks to me as though it's trying to destroy itself from within in an attempt to move with the times and be modern and kind. The General Synod has recently voted to allow the blessing of same-sex marriage. The Bishop of London, the Right Reverend Dame Sarah Mullally, who led the six-year process or debate into the Church's position on sexuality, is reported as saying this is a moment of hope for the Church. 
the option of same-sex marriage was not presented or voted on, and campaigners for same-sex marriage will obviously be dis- disappointed, as we saw in the East Anglian Daily Times report on January the 24th, which stated that the Bishop of St Edmundsbury in Ipswich and the Bishop of Dunwich had expressed their full support for the Church of England to adopt same-sex marriage. Permit me to present an alternative point of view to that expressed by the Church of England bishops. It is, I would argue, the biblical view, which may not be popular nor welcomed by same-sex campaigners and supporters. Despite Justin Welby, head of the Church of England, apologising to the LGBTQ community for its treatment of LGBTQ people for the hurt and pain caused by the Anglican Church, marriage is God's institution, and he said it's between a man and a woman. Two men or two women cannot be married. So if same-sex couples are joined in holy matrimony, it is, I would argue, unfortunately meaningless on a spiritual level. It makes me question whether the appointed bishops actually understand and believe in the Christian gospel and preach it, or do they preach another false gospel, which the Lord Jesus Christ himself continually warned his disciples about. I believe the bishops need to get on board and agree with their God, whom they are supposed to follow and represent. I will not comment on the concerted effort to change the Lord's Prayer in order to make it gender neutral and modern, which has once again hit the headlines. This next letter from Martin Taylor, a local historian whose articles we often read out, is advertising an event on behalf of Bury St Edmunds Society and is titled The Changing Face of Our Farming. The Bury Society will be sponsoring a free talk at the Guildhall in early March about local writer Adrian Bell, whose books and articles recorded the changing nature of farming in the area around Bury St Edmunds between 1920 and 1980. Adrian Bell is best known today as the first compiler of the Times Crossword or as the father of Martin Bell, BBC correspondent and independent MP, and Anthea Bell, translator of the Asterix comments. But he was also a gifted writer, and his work documents the agricultural revolution in East Anglia over a 60-year period. Bell moved to Suffolk from London in 1920 to begin an apprenticeship in farming, and soon fell in love with the area. He documented those first few years in his famous rural trilogy, Cordroy, Silver Lay, and The Cherry Tree, which were published between 1930 and 1932 and were treasured by nostalgic soldiers during the Second World War. His writing is rooted in the landscape, villages and towns of his beloved adopted home. The talk will be given by Richard Hawkin, author of At the Field's Edge, Adrian Bell and the English Countryside and Chairman of the Adrian Bell Society, who is currently working with publisher Slightly Foxed on a new collection of Bell's Eastern Daily Press articles. A Countryman's East Anglia, the writing of Adrian Bell, will be held at the Guildhall on the 11th of March at 10.30am, followed by refreshments. Tickets are free, but booking is essential. You can reserve your place here at countryman's-east-anglia.eventbrite.co.uk. Uh, Then let's finish with a final letter. Last week, a letter was read out about how to prove your identity without using a photo driving licence or a passport. Here's a response to that query. 
uh, and he calls his letter Free Photo ID. And it says, Gwen Pease asks in the EADT letters of February the 15th for alternatives to a passport or driving licence as means of providing photo identification. There are at least two possibilities. The age-related free travel bus pass and the voter authority certificate. These are both available free of charge, the former from the county council and the latter from district councils. Our first feature looks at when the greatest showman came to East Anglia. The crowds thronging Colchester streets in the summer of 1899 had never seen a spectacle like it. Barnum and Bailey's Circus was well into its 55-stop tour of Britain, and today it had arrived in the country's oldest town. In an age um, un unrestrained by advertising regulations, Barnum and Bailey's claim to be the greatest show on earth could well be dismissed as humbug, but in this case it was true. The scale was epic, requiring four specially modified railway wagons to transport it from showground to showground. The workforce was 860 strong, including 250 performers. There were 460 horses and 660 other animals, including 16 elephants and 18 camels. The circus itself had three rings, all in use at the same time. The entertainment was continuous, with breaks only long enough for one set of performers to replace another. Even these were covered by the appearance of clowns. There was nearly 50 acts, trained animals, aerial displays, weird magic illusions, mid-air wonders, ground and lofty tumbling, aquatic feats, sub-aqueous diversions, high-class equestrianism, three herds of elephants, two droves of camels, jumping horses and ponies, and races of all kind, claimed one newspaper advert. In addition to the circus, there was a huge menagerie and more than 40 performers in the so-called freak show. P.T. Barnum himself was instrumental in introducing them in popular culture. In 1844, he caused a sensation when he took the dwarf Charles Stratton, better known as General Tom Thumb, to Buckingham Palace to meet Queen Victoria. When Barnum went into business with James Bailey in 1881, the greatest show on earth was born and the freak show became an important part. When the show visited Colchester, the freaks or prodigies, as they preferred to be called, included Annie Jones, the bearded lady, Charles Tripp, the armless wanderer, Hassan Ali, the Egyptian giant, who stood seven foot eleven, um, Cuisiana and Sol Stone and Lightning Calculator, who could do immensely complicated mathematical complications in his head. The four trains carrying the greatest show on earth began rolling into Colchester North Station at about 1am on July the 25th. As soon as it was light, unloading began, a mammoth operation, but, according to the Essex County Standard, a triumph of organisation and good temper. The show was staged at Drury Farm off Morden Road, and first to arrive was the dining tent. It accommodated 800 people, and a breakfast of steak, chops, sausages and coffee was served. Then the menagerie tent was erected and everyone got ready for the great street parade. It was a gloriously fine morning, schools and factories were closed, and people poured in by rail and road. 
The parade set off from Malden Road at 9.40 a.m. It was led by mounted police, outriders followed by brightly uniformed band. Then came cages of lions, tigers, leopards, panthers, hyenas, bears and wolves. Further back were camels and a herd of elephants. At the end of the procession came a trailer carrying Native Americans and a wigwam followed by a huge steam organ which, according to the Essex County Standard, played Cock of the North until everyone was nearly deaf. As soon as the procession had passed, people poured onto the showground where the big top had been erected, a massive structure with seating for 15,000 people. Ticket prices ranged from one shilling, which is worth £5.75 today, to seven and sixpence, which is more than £40. The first of two shows began at 2pm. The Essex County Standards reporter was overwhelmed. It was a blaze of colour and excellence, such as never seen before in this country. The show programme claimed every aerialist, equestrian and gymnast was the best of his line, every horse a picture of equine perfection, and the animals in the great menagerie finer specimens than could be found in any zoo. The evening performance began at 8pm, but while it was going on, the tents no longer required were taken down and sent to the station, along with the animal cages, elephants and camels, on to the next stop, Ipswich. Between 11,000 and 12,000 people watched the afternoon performance, slightly more in the evening. Almost before the last of them had left the site, the final wagon was being loaded and all that remained of the greatest show on Earth's visit to Colchester was a sprinkling of straw and some sawdust. Now another feature. In this personal view, Lorna Hoey asks, are you sitting uncomfortably? Then let's just eat quickly. What is it with the seating in the food-serving establishments of our noble town? I love eating out and do so whenever I can especially when I can walk to the pub or restaurant, meet up with friends, have a glass or two of a decent beverage and walk home. Nothing nicer. But why is it that the offering from the chef can bear scant relation to the comfort of the person for whom it's intended? On several occasions I've been presented with a delicious-looking plateful of wondrousness, only to find that I must partake of it while perched on a wooden kitchen chair. Well, sorry, I can sit on a hard kitchen chair in my own kitchen, thank you very much. Cushions are sometimes provided on request, but should I have to ask for one? Shouldn't the sinking luxuriously onto a soft seat be part of the whole experience of relaxing in a restaurant, knowing somebody else is doing the cooking? All right, pubs are slightly different. I'm certainly not averse to parking myself on a pub stool, but in a restaurant I'd still expect a modicum of soft furnishings. The non-posterior situation does not lend itself to leisurely enjoyment. A friend and I once ate our extremely tasty meal much more quickly than intended because the seating was positively flintstones-like, rock-hard, almost too heavy to pull into the table. And then there's that wobbly chair scenario. Beer mats at the ready, my companion has been known to spend whole minutes grovelling around amongst bags and shoes while trying to set the seating on some sort of equilibrium. Yes, I know it was a 16th century floor with flagstones made by dinosaurs, but still. Now, I'm not comparing any of our excellent foodie establishments to fast food outlet McDonald's, except perhaps for the seating arrangement. When McDonald's first opened in London in 1974, there were a few wooden tables, with an ashtray on every one, of course, and wooden chairs to match, but the main offering was a stool-type chair with a back and a sloping seat. 
Apparently this was all to make sure you didn't get too comfortable. Eat up and go was the message. Essential, I suppose, given that in those early days, queues often formed outside to enjoy their 15p hamburgers amongst brown and cream decor and yellow lighting. Customers complained bitterly, however, that they couldn't enjoy their meal while simultaneously sliding off their seat, so the idea was dropped, although I clearly recall a North London branch retaining theirs for some lengthy time. That ache in the thighs is hard to forget. I'm aware that I'm privileged to be able to eat out in these times of austerity. Many of us are more concerned with the gas bill than gastronomy. I'm also aware that our hospitality industry was hard hit by the pandemic and is only now beginning to recover. And it's the reason I support our local cafes and restaurants when I can. I know I'll find top-class chef-inspired meals in many, not to mention unfailingly polite and helpful service. But please, just sort out the chairs. When I'm dressed for the evening, carrying a couple of cushions is not a good look. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsby News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and the Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. Until then, from Sheila, Colin, David and Chris, it's goodbye. Bye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.